The following episode contains language and descriptions of violence and self-harm. It may not be appropriate for all listeners, but it was my life. Discretion is advised. We're not bad people. We've made some pretty poor choices. I can't deny that, but I am not defined by my choices. I never will be defined by my choices. If my children can go through what they went through and still look at me and tell me how much they love me, if my mom can go through everything I put her through and still love me, then I can love myself. Because I did some pretty mean things to them, but I did a lot of mean stuff to myself. I'm your host, Peter Meyerhoff, and you're listening to the Roll Call with Chappie podcast. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe, share, and follow us on social media. You can learn more about this episode and my mission at petermeyerhoff.com. All right, drop it. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Roll Call with Chappie. I got a super dope guest with me today, my friend Megan. She has an insane story from prison to... Some stuff that I was even speechless hearing about. So thank you for being here. This is the first time that she has shared her crazy story on a podcast. So I feel very privileged to get the first dibs on it. So like I said, thank you for being here again, Megan, and welcome to the studio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you got into some very, very crazy stuff in your lifetime. And we're going to get into that first. But I always like to get the message of how even experimenting with drugs or just trying certain drugs. And it always leads into a snowball effect of clearly how you landed yourself in prison. But how did you start experimenting with drugs? And just take me down that path real quick so we can have the listeners yeah. hear that. Um, so I was I was a pretty goody two-shoes kid growing up. Um, I got straight A's and I did really well in school. Um, Makes one of us. <laughs> it was really important to me. Um, I didn't have a lot of self-worth. I didn't really like who I was, but I knew I could, contr- I could control my brain. Um, I couldn't control the way God made me, but like that was something that was within my power. Um, and you know, I, I drank a lot that was really socially accepted in my household. Um, I got drunk with my parents' friends. It was just a normal thing. Mm -hmm. Um, having parties, my parents would leave and that's where, that's what I would do. And I didn't want to try drugs. Um, I knew I had a pretty addictive personality. I was like an adrenaline junkie, anything I could do, like from riding motorcycles, wakeboard, you know, that's, that was my life. That was the lifestyle we lived. We, we were living in New River. And I don't even know where that is. It's like um, a little north. It's next to Anthem. Okay. And um, so we lived in the desert. So, you know, we rode motorcycles from the house and golf carts. And we're always at Lake Pleasant um, going to the sand dunes. So that was my lifestyle. And alcohol was in, involved in that. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't like pot. It wasn't my thing. Um, a lot of people around me were doing drugs and I just didn't want to do it. Uh, when I was 18, I, I met a guy and, you know, at the time I was addictively working out and we met at the gym and, you know, <laughs> those good old gym relationships, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, you know, he was from upstate New York, had this attitude, very egotistical. And I just, I fell for it. You know, I fell in love. Um, and he wanted me was the thing he, yeah. um, he chose me, which I, I, I didn't understand because at that time I had no worth. Um, and you know, he apparently, I didn't really know about drugs, but he had a drug problem back in the day. He was significantly older than I was. And I remember one night he came home with cocaine and I was just like, oh, you know, it was a pretty decent amount on the table. And he's like, all right, let's go. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. Just like that. that Just like that. I was 18. I never tried any hard drugs and I'm, I, I've said, okay, let's do it. Um, I remember 
you know, doing that first line and the first thought in my head was, oh my God, this is, this is it. I have that, I have arrived moment. Um, I, I tried explaining this to somebody today and it's, I finally felt comfortable in my own skin. I finally felt like this is what people feel every day. This is how they're supposed to feel. They don't, you know, they don't wake up every day wishing they weren't alive. Like they wake up and they're happy and and they feel good. And so the second thought was that's not going to be enough for tonight. And again, it's a significant amount of cocaine. It's funny. Your first time doing drugs and you're already thinking this isn't going to be enough. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Looking back at it now, like having that be my first thought, like I can see that as a big trigger, a big red flag. But Megan then didn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And it kind of progressed from there. You know, he was my dealer. Like I got what I needed from him. And so when he would supply it, I would get it. And I'm already obsessing about it. Of course. Um, I'm not asking because I I don't want to be that person, but um, I'm hoping. And one day I'm taking a shower and he comes in with um, Oxycontin, the blue thirties. And he's like, here, um, take half of this, open your mouth. Just like that, huh? Just like that. Um, And I took it and holy moly, the feeling that cocaine gave me was nothing compared to what opiates gave me. I got goosebumps hearing that, yeah, Mm because I know that opiate feeling. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I was naive. I didn't know, um, you know, I'm in college at this time going for my criminal justice degree. Wow. Um, I'm doing well in college. And I also start to have a drug problem. Um, I didn't think it was a problem because, you know, it was up to him. It was up to him when we got it mm-hmm. until it wasn't. Um, so that relationship was my first, you know, physically abusive relationship that I entered into. And, and I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Um, I didn't experience like domestic violence in my household. I was more of the silent treatment. Um, no, not a lot of love going on in the household, but never, you know, somebody be- being physically violent. And you combine that with not having worth in self. Um, being dependent on somebody to get me a substance that I'm slowly becoming addicted to physically. And now like mentally it already clicked right away. Mentally it was, it was over the second I took it. Um, yeah, it, it made for a really bad situation. Um, I remember the first night he ever put his hands on me, we had gone to Mexico and he liked to drink and he got pretty violent when he drank and something happened. Um, he would snap a lot. So he might have been doing other things that I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm like naive. For sure. Um, and I'm in love. And this yeah. is the person I think that uh, I'm going <clears> to <throat> spend the rest of my life with. And I love his family. And, you know, we're in Mexico and we're both drunk. And he gets upset at me about something and just grabs me by my neck with both hands, throws me, like puts me up against the wall and is choking me. Oh, and finally lets me go and I run downstairs and I remember somebody like coming up to me and I'm like sitting in the dark on this bench crying and they're like, are you okay? And I'm, you know, I don't ask for help. I don't say what just happened. I, I just let them know I'm okay. Go back up to the room. We, we fall asleep and everything's fine. You know, it doesn't get talked about. I, I don't reach out to my parents. We don't have a relationship like that. And I move on with life. So situations like that continue to happen and, you know, they would progressively get worse. And as the drugs got worse, um, those situations got worse. 
That's how it always is. Mm-hmm. So how did that one end? Did you, after that trip in Mexico? We, I mean, we just went home and it was life as usual. Um, he was definitely a womanizer. I was, again, a naive person. Um, I didn't want to believe that he was cheating, but um, in my heart, I knew he was. And I, I finally figured out it had been like three years into the relationship. We were engaged. And, um, you know, he was like, yeah, I, I'm I'm with somebody. And he moved about a week later to California. Wow. And moved in with her. And then just left you with probably a drug habit now, right? Um, Absolutely. So the Let me day- guess. Hold on. Let me guess. Did you numb the breakup oh, pain with more drugs? Yes, I did. <laughs> so I remember, I, I remember the night that I called our drug dealer and, um, you know, I, I said, hey, let me meet you where you're at. I'm going to pick up some pills. And that's how I got through that breakup was numbing myself and then it was just another relationship after that that was me hiding my drug habit from him him like hiding his drug habit from me um and i was doing oxys at the time um the new guy i'm with is doing heroin i don't know anything about heroin at this point you probably think it's so different from oxy still huh oh yeah you know people don't think like no i just do pills and it's it's heroin Right. So I I don't understand what his problem is. He's like imploding his life. I'm maintaining, um, still going to school, still doing well, passing classes, um, nodding off, yeah. you know, doing that whole thing. And so I end up leaving him because I'm tired of his drug habit. Right. It's mm-hmm. it, I have he was one. The problem, huh? Right. He's the problem. Not me. Uh, I moved back in with my mom. And um, I meet my children's father. And at this point, you know, I, I'm i just seeking men who can support my habits. For sure. So with the first relationship, it was, okay, this man can give me a lifestyle I want. It, it was never about what can, like, what kind of love can this person give me? It was, it was more about what empty feelings can I fulfill? For sure. And so when I met my children's father... He was connected um, with the drug world, um, and so that was appealing to me. And this was before our kids, so our relationship was based off of drugs. And instead of um, graduating my senior year, I decided to start my drug career. And so I dropped out of ASU in the criminal justice program. Wow, what a major swing of things, like criminal justice to where you took Mm. where your path went. Mm-hmm. Wow. And just as a side note, so when I was when I was in college, um, I took a class and we went to the prison that's off of Pioneer Road, and it's a men's medium security and a women women's minimum security. And we toured the facility. We did like federal state kind of thing. Um, so that kind of comes back around to later in life of where I actually ended up going to prison. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's get into some stuff before because you went down the, a very bad slope before then. So how right. bad did it get before you got pregnant? And let's get into everything up until you got you knew you were pregnant and had your baby. Okay. So with my children's father, you know, my drug habit started to get pretty bad. Um, he started doing pills with me. And um, I find out, well, we ended up splitting up. It was, it was a pretty toxic relationship, okay. you know. Um, I... 
So backing up a little bit. Um, so my children's father and I got together a couple of months into it. Um, you know, I, I, I slept with the, the person that I had been with prior to that. And um, I ended up pregnant. Um, I found out I was pregnant. And a couple of weeks later, I had a miscarriage. Mm. So, um, you know, I continued the relationship. He found out. And, you know, it's just, again, that toxic relationship, um, just a lot of drinking, a lot of using drugs and um, not oh, working. You. Let's just do drugs together and stuff. Yeah. And yeah. So uh, towards the end, I found out that I was pregnant. He and I were no longer together at that point, And um, I couldn't stop using. Were you using one during mm -hmm. your pregnancy too? Wow. Yeah. Um, so I, I found out I was pregnant. I still had a pretty bad, um, Oxycontin habit. I tried to stop and that didn't work. Um, I didn't know about resources. I, I just didn't know what was available to me. And I thought I was alone in that situation. And the one person, you know, that should be there to support me now has a heroin habit. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I went through the pregnancy hiding the fact that I was using and uh, towards like the end of my pregnancy around seven months, I was able to stop because um, I knew DCS would take my child. For sure. Um, so I was able to stop. I had my daughter and, you know, her dad and I just weren't working out. The relationship was built based off of drugs. Mm -hmm. It wasn't going to work. And um, I move in with my cousin and he comes back around. Uh, he brings heroin back around me, and I knew at this point he had a heroin habit, and I was pretty fed up, and I said, you know what? I'll try it. Um, so I, I tried heroin that night, and I didn't stop doing it for two years. It's a game changer. It is. Mm -hmm. It was. I didn't understand the physical component of what heroin does because um, with the pills, it was very mental. There was some physical, but it wasn't as intense as heroin Heroin's is the most addictive drug on the face of the earth like it's it's crazy the handle that thing gets on you you know mm -hmm. like you'll ruin anything in your life in your oh, yeah. way for it yeah absolutely so that's what i want to kind of get into now after you had the baby um yeah about two months after i had my daughter single um, mother so dad's in and out of he's in and out of the picture a lot okay. um you know i i pick up this really bad heroin habit about two months after having my daughter and move it back, you know, move back in with mom. Then I moved back in with, um, you know, her dad and her grandfather. And eventually everybody caught on. Everybody knows what's going on. Mm -hmm. They call CPS. CPS gets involved. Dad, you know, flies out to Missouri to be with his mom. And I'm there with the child. CPS is in my life and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to stop. And they don't they don't help you and tell you how to stop. They just say, you know, you need to stop. Mm -hmm. um, and people don't know if there's answers out there. You know, like people get oh, yeah. you on drugs and they don't tell you like there's an answer to get off those things. Oh, you know, yeah. they just throw you to all the drugs and then like have at it and then like try and figure it out on your own. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so you kind of know what I'm getting at right here. I want to get into like how bad, it, how bad and the drug hold can get on you, especially <laughs> the hard drugs and not to mention heroin being a single mother. It, I mean, it took you to like a, Really, really bad place. It took me to a really bad place. You know, um, so that point in my life, I was able to get sober. Um, I got my daughter back. Um, 
my ex and I ended up seeing each other one night and had a random hookup and my son was born. No way. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I'm now I'm, I'm pregnant. I'm hiding my pregnancy from my DCS caseworker and I'm maintaining sobriety. I'm, I'm doing the most. I'm on this pink cloud. Life is not amazing, but it feels good. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. At least it's not horrible or something, you know? Right. Yeah. Like situation, it, it, it was going good for me. And, um, you know, dad decides he's not going to be in the picture, doesn't want to be in our son's life, goes back again to Missouri. And um, now DCS case is closed and I'm in sobriety and I have two kids to raise. Um, and that was challenging. Yeah. So in my previous act of addiction, um, I started selling myself. And I thought it was okay because, you know, these are men who have a lot of money. I'm a sugar baby. Like, it's not prostitution. Um, I'm going to label it as I'm a sugar baby. Uh Um, And so I I did that. And when I got sober, uh, my job just wasn't cutting it. As a single mom, it wasn't wasn't paying all the bills. So I did have to prostitute in sobriety. And that was a challenge. Um, Again, I was like, no, these guys have money. It's okay. Um, It's not like I'm on the street. You Mm -hmm. know, it's the manipulation factor for myself of manipulating myself to believe it's okay. Yeah. Um, So I do that for a while. And, you know, dad comes back around. There's a theme here. Dad coming back around. And he comes back from Missouri and I'm I'm living life, you know. At this point, I'm sober a couple of years. I um, I'm working for Maricopa County Superior Court, and um, I'm I'm raising these kids. And Dad comes back around, and I'm like, okay, let's let's do this. You know, we're we're not together, but I want you to know your son and your daughter loves you. Um, a couple of months into that, you know, I, I get a new place, and I come home from work, and he's like, hey, come back here, and I'm like, yeah, what's up? And I I go back into my bathroom and he opens up my medicine cabinet and he said, I got something for us. And he pulls out, you know, he pulls out the tinfoil, the tutor, the hair, everything. And nothing inside of me said, you know, go to a meeting, call your sponsor, kick him out, call the cops. None of it. Everything in me said, do that. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So that night, I... I smoked it with him and two weeks later, you know, he shot me up for the first time and... You graduated before me because I didn't get to needles till I was in prison. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it took a while, yeah. but yeah, it was it was that progression. I'm probably 20, I don't know, 27 at the time, finally using needles. I'm trying to work for the court system, shooting up in the bathroom um, and I get a promotion uh, I, I move over to Durango, the juvenile courts over there. Mm-hmm. I'm a courtroom clerk at this time. And my habit's bad. You know, I'm using a couple grams of heroin a day. I'm using meth. Um, I'm drinking about a gallon of Fireball a day. Can't imagine how you look going to work every day. <laughs> they kept me on and yeah. they promoted me. I don't wow. know. And yeah. that's that manipulation factor. You know, so sure. I'm I'm shooting up in the bathroom. I'm bringing my drugs in. I've got a full cup of Fireball on my desk. Wow. So then what happens after that? So 
I, uh, one day, um, I wasn't able to get meth, right? And I'm on two downers and I decide to go outside in the parking lot and take a break. Um, I'm pretty sure my, my job knows what's going on and I end up passing out for an hour and two of my bosses come outside, they knock on my window and they're like, what, what's going on? Um, so I was able to manipulate the situation. I lied. I said I was really depressed. I'm not sleeping. Um, I got a doctor to sign off on my FMLA paperwork saying I was depressed and I took some time off of work and secured my job, went back still high, still high. Um, and at this point, you know, I, I'm taking my kids with me to the trap house and, you know, uh, in my brain, I'm like, my dealer, She, it's a female, she has kids, like, it, this is okay. So it's okay, yeah. This is okay, you know. Um, eventually, I, I tried to hide my kids from that world for a really long time, but it got to the point where I just couldn't do it anymore. I just couldn't be dope sick anymore. And that came first. Mm-hmm. So my kids, um, they spent a lot of time in the car. A lot of time in the car driving with me. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> a lot of time in places they shouldn't have been. For sure. Um, um, my son was young enough to where he's not going to remember any of this, but my daughter, uh, she remembers a lot. Does she? She does. And it's hard. Does she ever say stuff to you still about it? Not so much anymore. She did at first. Though, she probably. did. Oh yeah, she did. At least she's news to the you, new you now. Oh yes. Okay, cool. I ask her. I ask her a lot of questions. Cool. About, do you know, how was mommy before? Mm-hmm. Um, was mommy mean to you before? You know, what I yeah. I, I want to know like the honest truth. Yeah. I I don't want to. I want her to be raw with me, and she has a hard time doing that. A really hard time. Um, so all of this is going on and I decide one day that I just can't keep doing this. I can't keep living this lie. I quit my job. I cash my 401k. Um, and I'm just on, I'm just living this lifestyle. You know, I, I was living with my mom at the time and she's angry cause she knows, she knows I'm getting high. Mm-hmm. Um, our household is one that you just don't say stuff, you know, don't, don't say anything. Um, so nothing was said about it. And, you know, my way of manipulating the situation to go get my drugs was to, um, say, okay, I'm taking the kids to the park and we live in Glendale. Right. And I'm driving a good 45 minutes to my dope dealer's house house with my kids and I'm raging with anger because I'm dope sick or whatever, you know, and all the withdrawal symptoms are happening and my kids are right there with me and they're like, who is this erratic woman? This is not my mom. So I end up going to my dope dealer's house one day and by this time I had quit my job. I have no more money left. And, um, I'm, I'm basically living on the couch with my two kids at the dope dealer's house. Um, and that goes on for about a month. 
Uh, my mom's calling every once in a while and she wants to know what's going on and I'm making up all of these stories. <clears throat> Probably just checking more that you're alive and stuff too. Mm-hmm. Making just making up all. And I'm in the bathroom while my, you know, my kids are out on the couch and okay, it's my dealer, she's fine, but you know, who knows who's there? Yeah. Right? Um, I'm leaving my kids with her to go. Um, meet this girl who's got very good options for me to make money. And in, I you know, I go over there and, you know, she's with her pimp and she sits me down and is like, so, you know, I, I need to let you know something about this. Like, there's no going back. You don't get to go back from this situation. This is something that stays with you forever. So if you want to sell your body like this, be careful. Think about it. You know, I I look back and I thank her for that. Like, she had the decency. At least try to kind of warn Right. Yeah. Like, has to be some decent human. At least she had some feelings inside. She did. Yeah. Um. So, you know, that night we take pictures and we're going to post them and, you know, start selling myself. Um, hoping my kids are okay. Trying to get high. Mm-hmm. Just everything was trying. I'm a straight A student with a criminal justice, like in uh -huh. college. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Decent family. Yeah. You know they had money. Like, shouldn't and, have happened. And for the record, everybody, she showed up with her kids here today. So like, even hearing these is like, I'm. It's crazy to me to even think of you being like that. You know, like mm -hmm. when I was hearing some of the stories you were talking about with Hannah earlier, I I couldn't even believe it. So it just shows a full transformation is possible for anybody if you put the work in. Oh yeah. So. Um, yeah, let's keep going about this. And I want to get into how you went to prison too. Okay. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm at my, my dope dealer's house and a, an opportunity presents itself from, um, from one of the cartels and I jumped on it. You know, at this time my car had gotten repossessed because I put, um, one of those payday loans out on it. They found it. Um, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to make some money. They haven't told me how I'm going to make this money yet, but I'm going to make enough to get my car out, enough to, you know, support my kids, have food, and get dope. Um, that, Sounds like a win-win, huh? Right. It, it sounded like a, a great idea at the time. And, you know, there was I, – I never wanted my kids to go hungry. Like, there was always a way I found – I always found a way to get them food. I always found a way to get them what they needed, but – in the life we live today, that is the below the bare minimum of mm -hmm. what they get. For sure. Um, so they end up picking myself and my kids up. Um, we drive out to Yuma, Arizona to meet with them. Um, the way they presented it, uh, I was going to be a situation where they would set me up, set me up in this hotel, <clears throat> introduce themselves to me and, we would talk business then, but everybody in the house knew, like, you know what you're going to go do. Mm -hmm. They know, you know what they're going to have you do. And I'm like, not necessarily. Again, here's that manipulation. Mm -hmm. Like, no, not necessarily. I'm trying to, to make this trip to Mexico with my children. Okay. And it's not. Um, but everything in me, in that I'm dope sick right then, you know, and I when go. you're to, dope sick, you do fucking anything. Oh yeah. I go to Mexico dope sick. I wake up, you know, I wake up dope sick and um, my kids, like, they they want to go out and play and all I can do is just get angry because I'm sick. Um, so we get to Mexico and 
we're there for a while. Um, they end up finding out that, you know, I am a heroin addict and they're supplying me with my drug and, you know, connecting me with certain people down there. And, um, you know, they, they bring a truck to the hotel we're staying at and they're like, here, you're, you're going to be using this truck. I'm like, okay, I can do that. You know, and they're like, we need you to do some test runs. Um, we need you just to cross the border and come back, you know, cross the border, get us some Jack in the box and come back. I'm like, okay, I can do that. Um, so I cross the border, get some, some food and I come back. Um, I do that a couple of times. And then, um, like the fourth time I did that, uh, secondary had me, you know, they had me go to secondary, which is where they like question you a little bit more, possibly bring out the drug dog, all of that. So they had me get out of the truck with my kids, um, go into the little office and wait. They didn't find anything. We get back in, cross the border. Um, so a couple of days later, you know, the truck's acting up and they're like, okay, well, we're going to take the truck today, fix it. And you're going to leave tomorrow. Like, okay. Like, I want to get out of here. Like, I don't want to be here anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't have a way to leave. Um, trapped in Mexico with your kids strung out too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, they fix the car, they drop it off. I put everything in there and, and we're, we're going to leave that day. You know, he comes and, and I let them know, uh, after I had, had gone to secondary, I let them know that night, like, Hey, just so you know, like this truck's no good. They sent me to secondary. They hit on it. Um, and so they were like, it's fine. Uh, we're actually going to, you know, we have an assignment for you. You're just going to go to go get a new phone at the Walmart across the border. Uh, we want you to go to California, pick up some money, and then come back to us. Like, okay, I can do that. Um, and so they give me some cash. And uh, that night I go and they want me to leave, but I'm dope sick still. Well. I needed drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I go to one of the guys that I had met down there and they end up finding me. I'm I'm driving, you know, down like one of the roads in Mexico. And all of a sudden, you know, these lights are flashing behind me. And these two Mexican guys are like, hey, pull over. How scared are you? I'm not, though. I'm not afraid. All I'm thinking is, man, you're getting in the way of me getting high. Why, why are you behind me? Are you following me? Like, what's going on? I'm crying. Like, I just want to get high. What are your kids doing at this point? Like, are they behaving in the car? Are they just, like, kind of tuned out at this point? Probably, or... I, they're just sitting... The, like, to them, this is normal. Yeah, that's that what, what I did. That's it, what yeah. I did to them. I created such chaos that this is normal. The chaos was normal to them. It's so sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's why you're doing what you do now, though. Mm-hmm. So they find me and they're like, you need to go by the border, wait for us, we'll bring you what you need. So they bring me what I need. I, I you know, I go to the bathroom, I shoot up, I have more on me. And they're like, okay, you need to cross. Like, let's go. And they're trying to hurry me up, hurry me up. And so um, I go and I wait in line and it's about 11 p.m., don't I? I can't tell you why I left so late. I, I don't even know. And I go across the border, and they question you, like, "Why are you here?" And I give him some BS story, and then he's like, mm, "Secondary." Go like, okay, that's fine. Um, so we go to secondary, and he's asking for my ID, and he's just like looking at me weird, right? And he's like, "All right, get out of the car." 
like, okay. So I get out of the car again, like thinking it's just going to be a situation like it was before where they had us wait in the lobby, um, search the vehicle and then let us go. And so the kids and I are going, go into the lobby and, um, the, you know, I see the dog going crazy, just absolutely crazy. And I'm not really thinking much of it. And then all of a sudden I see like <laughs> 10 of them rush out to the truck. And I'm like, oh, this is not good. Like some show the movies, huh? Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I have stuff on me still. I've got a rig on me. I've got meth, heroin, fentanyl. Like I got it all on me. And so I go to like go to the bathroom and they're like, uh-uh, stop. Because I'm going to get rid of everything that's on me. They they stop me, bring me into like the cell that's right there, bring my kids in with me. And, you know, I'm freaking out. I'm crying. My kids are crying. They're scared. Um, the one lady's like, you know, you need to stop or we're just going to handcuff you in front of your kids. I don't give a shit how much you cry when, that, when mm-hmm. the time comes. And so... So they take my kids out. They close the door and, you know, they handcuff me. They start searching me. They find the the rig, like an empty rig, but they don't find my drugs. And, you know, they have my phone. They're like, what's your password? I tell them my password. Um, and, you know, they're like asking me all these questions. And I'm just like so confused at this point about what's going on. Um I, I couldn't even have fathomed that what happened was happening. And so they put me in the cell. My kids are somewhere. I have no clue. And one of um, one of the Border Patrol agents comes in and like, who can pick your kids up? You know, and looking back at it, it's like CPS should have been called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. hundred percent. I was ho- like a horrible mother, but yeah. by some power greater than myself like he saw fit for me to have my kids in my life i don't know why (laughs) to take stories like this though you know to help people and to change because i was causing a lot of pain and a lot of trauma things that you know we're still working through to this day that's things that my daughter probably still have to you know have some therapy on for sure um, so I give them my dad's number and my dad calls and says, or they call my dad and he's like, I can't get them. Um, and I was like, God, I have to tell my mom. I mean, she's gonna find out, but like, gosh. Oh, here's another story. We're scared to tell our parents we screwed up again. We're like 30 years <laughs> right, old. Right. Yeah. You know, here's another phone call. Megan's been arrested. Like, oh, so, you know, they, they call my mom and. My mom, she's that that savior, you know, she's my enabler, but she was also the person I despised the most. And so, um, you know, they tell me that they got a hold of my mom and that she's on her way. And it's about a four hour drive. Uh, so Border Patrol agents have my kids at this point. You know, they make them as comfortable as they possibly can. They have a couple of cots there, some coloring books, um, stuffed animals and you know my kids like they don't know what's going on my son's two and you know he doesn't understand like he was he was literally like a third arm (laughs) you know he was my little dude he always he was just always with me never wanted to leave me real quick off subject but i 
and I, I just want to know this myself. I still have flashbacks of like stuff I did back then, mm. like the worst stuff. And like, I get like almost panic attacks and okay. I just like cringe and like, I'll go like this and like, and I don't, I'm not trying to be hard, but like I said, I want to just be real as shit about this and stuff. Cause your story's going to help a lot of people. Like how do you still to this day ever put yourself and think of like, cause I don't know, I guess I'm not trying to bring up bad stuff, but like I'm right now, when you told me that, I'm like thinking, I always imagine like after they took you away and you said your boy's attached at the hip to you, like, mm -hmm. what does he do the next few days? Like how bad are those few days for him? And do you still think about that today? And does that motivate you at all to keep doing what you're doing now? Or, um, or do you try to just like block that stuff out? Cause everybody handles that stuff differently. Right. Everybody handles it so different. I hope you had thought about that before and I didn't just bring it up and put it in no, your head. No, no, no. It happens a lot. It okay. happens a lot there. Um, there, so I, I worked as after everything happened, right? And I, I worked at a certain job where I would drive by this one particular tree. It was like a desert kind of tree, right? And it would trigger me every day I went to work. And it would put me right back into that place. And it wasn't it wasn't what I was feeling in that moment when things were going on. It was what what were my kids thinking? You know, and that that haunted me the first like two, two and a half years of my sobriety um, of what what could my kids have been going through? What could have happened? That was a big one. Mm -hmm. That was huge. You know, nothing ever really physically bad happened to my children. A lot of emotional stuff, but like what, physically they could have been so harmed. Mm -hmm. We could have all been killed. Oh, in a second raped in the but. united states let alone going out of mexico where you are there's like i'm shocked all three of you guys made it back right like seriously because those are stories you hear people just disappear right um okay so now you and this is what sent you to prison yeah so um kids are you know safe with border patrol safe as they can be um traumatized at this point i'm in my cell and you know the drugs they didn't find i i take them all you know, I, I just swallowed everything and said, all right. What happens, happens. Mm -hmm. So I end up passing out. Um, I wake up a couple hours later and, you know, the the marshals come in and they bring me into a room and they interrogate me. Um, I make up all these lies and like they're, you know, they want to mm. know what I do, like what I did that day. And I mean, for the most part, I was honest in the beginning, right? Because they're like, well, what happened? And I, at this point, don't know what's going on. Like, I don't know that there was 89 pounds of methamphetamines in the truck I was driving across the border. That's what it was? Mm -hmm. Well, I have no idea. So when one of the detectives was like, yeah, you had, you had 89 pounds worth of methamphetamines in your truck. You're like, I've never even seen that in my life. I was like, I don't even really like meth. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, you like, I'm know, more of a heroin girl. Right. That's not even my thing. Why would I want to transport it? You know, and that I did, that didn't work when you told the cops that. No, <laughs> it was it was more crying. Yeah. And so I get interrogated. I just it's an out of body experience. But after they interrogated me, put me back in the cell, and closed the door, I have never felt more free in my life. Really? Seriously. It was well, it, it was then. it was done. The madness, the chaos was done. Because a lot of people say, like my family talks about that with me too. Like when I finally got locked up and went away, they were like happy. They're like, mm -hmm. he's safe, he's alive. I mean, like we never thought I'd get twelve years in prison, but they're like, at least they knew where I was, right. and knew where I was going to be tomorrow. You exactly. Know? But I didn't, and I didn't have a 
thought like when I got locked up, like it's over, you know what I'm saying? I thought like I'm going to prison now, but who knows what's going to happen next. You were, you had made your mind up then you were, but I didn't have kids, you know? So, right. and I was so young. Mm-hmm. You were, so you had made your mind up then like this is over? No. Okay. But, but I felt free. Okay. So, um, so they process everything and my mom and my stepdad come to get my kids that four hour drive, four hour drive back. Um, I don't really know what's going on with that situation because they're keeping me out of the loop. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, the person that interrogated me, put me in his truck and drove me to the detention center in Yuma. Um, I get processed in and I let them know, Hey, I'm, I'm a heroin addict and I'm in active withdrawal. And they put me in medical isolation for seven days. And that's what it is. You know, you're just, you're in there, you're, you're detoxing and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, the light never turns off in there. Mm -hmm. So, um, I know some people think they're like, well, I'm telling them I'm strung out though. They're going to help you and give you some meds. No, they just block you away from everybody else. So you can't shit and pee on people because it'll get in, you're getting fights over it. That's literally what happens. Oh yeah. So they, they took me out of general population, put me in isolation and I, 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 I withdrew for about seven days there. Um, and then the marshals from Florence came to get me to take me back to Phoenix. So, um, you know, I get boxed and shackled up. I had already had my court appearance. Oh, here's here's how delusional I was. Okay, so as I'm I, as I'm in isolation, I'm detoxing and I'm, I'm laying in the bed, and it's probably like day two. And Oof. I'm thinking, you know, I'm gonna see the judge today, and the judge is gonna let me out. He's gonna let me out today. I'm gonna get out. I'm gonna cross the border. I'm gonna find a gun. I'm going to shoot them and I'm going to get my drug and I'm going to cross back and come to America. That was my plan. There's some pretty ambitious plans there. That's just where I was in the entire situation. I was, I was done. You know, I didn't think I was going to live it while I was actively using. So by that point I had already like written myself off as dead. And now I'm in just, the worst withdrawal process and I'm angry and I want vengeance and I'm just not that person. Mm -hmm. And so luckily, you know, (laughs) the judge didn't let me out, said, no, you can stay in in jail longer. Um, Your crime warrants that. So they transport me up to Florence, you know, you get boxed and shackled and I'm still withdrawing at this point. And, you know, I hear all the guys in the back speaking in Spanish and they're just like talking so much shit about me. Like, oh, look at her. Like that gringo. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) You know, and I'm just not feeling it. And it's a four hour drive. And there's two ladies sitting next to me in a seat that's about this big Mm -hmm. of what I'm sitting in now. So um, I get over to Florence and I start that process of going to general population, you know, going from. The lifestyle I lived, um, I mean, I did see a lot of things in active addiction, but I just never experienced anything like prison or jail. Yeah. And Florence is not like the best place to be. It's not fun. It's not. Spend some time there. Right. Um, So I get there and and luckily um, with the feds, they're contracted with Crossroads. 
I didn't even know that. Yeah. I escaped from Crossroads before I went to prison. Did you? Yep. I escaped to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as I'm like talking to all these women, you know, they're like letting me know, hey, you know, you can get out. You can get out on pretrial. You can go to um, Crossroads because you're an addict. And I'm like, oh, my God, what? I can get treatment. And by this point, it, I'm a couple of weeks sober and and I have some clarity and I'm like, I want this. How good is just real quick, some good positive stuff. How good is the feeling when you're finally off drugs and you're done withdrawing and you're just normal? It's is that not the greatest feeling it, in the world? There's nothing better. I, I got goosebumps <laughs> just thinking, you're like, all right, I'm two weeks sober. I'm like, oh my gosh. Right. I remember after getting two weeks after a drug run, you're mm-hmm. finally sleeping normal and you're like, I'm never doing this again until oh, you yeah. do it again. Until you do it again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I'm just like, wow, this is, so it's a whole interview process you do, you know, you go into this little room and, and you're waiting and, um, you sit there and there's a TV screen in front of you and somebody from Crossroads is interviewing you and they're basically like, why, why do you deserve to get out of jail and come here? And you explain to them what's going on. And I already had some sobriety time before that. So I know the things to say. Again, I'm in the height of my manipulation. Mm-hmm. I know. Pro at it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know what to do, what to say to get what I need when I want it. And so, um, you know, my, my lawyer advocates for me to go to Crossroads and I get out. Um, they come pick me up. I'm on pretrial. So I, I'm pending a, uh, you know, a sentence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I do four months with Crossroads and it was, it was challenging. Um, I almost got into a fight. My pretrial officer called me up at Crossroads and was like, what are you doing? I'm going to send you back to jail. Are you an idiot? And so I had to humble myself. I really had to humble myself. Um, at this point, I'm realizing the damage I've done. I've had visitations with my kids at this point. Oh. And how are they taking it at this point? Are they just happy to see you finally probably? They, yeah, they were happy to see me. Um, so my son, he he didn't do well. He didn't do very well with my absence. He really uh, regressed. He got violent. And um, he was a very challenging child for my mom. So I'm in crossroads. Um, after I had gotten arrested, my mom ended up getting guardianship of my children, their dad, again, is just not in their life. Um, so, again, by the grace of something greater than me, my mom was able to step up and do that. Shout out to all the moms out there for taking that, care of kids when we do this stuff because there's some listen to this too that are feeling hopeless or feeling like they're in this exact same situation and this your proof that there's mm-hmm. a way out, you know? You know, and, and for my mom, like her daughter had already had sobriety. So it's like what's it going to take, Megan? You know, like you don't do anything small. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you have to implode your entire <laughs> life to get sober. Um, so she, she stepped up. She awesome. was grandma and mom. She was doing everything. And I could see the just the toll it was taking on her because when she would come for visits, she's just like, your son, I, I can't. I, I might have to, you know, I, I might have to have your children adopted oh like this is just not you know and and that was hard what's worse than hearing that at a visit and then you just get to have to go back to your cell and knowing what she's dealing with right. and all you're doing is stressed about it huh it's it's horrible yeah. it's um it's nothing that a grandparent should have to go through it's nothing a parent should have to go through or their their children mm-hmm. and it's just another another thing to this disease 
you know? It doesn't um, stop taking. It doesn't. No, it doesn't. It doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care where you came from. Um, and that's that was something that I had to understand. My ego, I had a big ego. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was zero self-worth with a big ego. Horrible combination. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> so did you end up signing a plea bargain for prison? Uh, yeah. So they dropped. Because um, I want to get into some women's prison stuff. I'm not too familiar oh, with that. Oh, boy. <laughs> I know everybody <laughs> it's else wants to know. a lot different. I heard I your story. Much. Listen, <laughs> it wasn't like that. <laughs> Do they have shot callers in there? <sighs> no. Okay. Not really. I mean, like your kitchen. People who ran the kitchen were like. Really? Oh, yeah. Because they had all the ingredients and women. <laughs> like, we like to make food and have parties. <laughs> That's we're trying to fucking sharpen metal pieces no. in the kitchen and sneak them home. No, yeah. we weren't doing that. At least at this particular prison. Okay. But, um, so, yeah, you know, I, I, I sign a plea. I take a, a lesser charge of distribution. I was looking at up to seven years. And um, with the feds, there's it's like a sliding scale type system. Yeah. It's very weird. Um, where I started off, you know, I had 89 pounds of meth on me. I had no priors. So, like, I was sitting pretty bad. Yeah. And there's a lot of mitigating factors that come into play. So, after I did um, my interview with the probation office, they were um, they were wanting 33 months. And um, when I went to my sentencing hearing, the judge gave me 30. And so this is after I I, I got into the program. I I went blindly into the program because I had nothing left. The anonymous one? Yeah. And um, I, I didn't have my kids. I didn't have any worth. Like everything was taken from me that I absolutely loved. And you finally hit your rock bottom. Oh, yeah. I was broken. I took every suggestion that was given to me. Finally, huh? And um, I ran with it. You know, once I got out of Crossroads, I was able to to be out for three months on pretrial. And I, I just remember meeting with my attorney and I'm like, is there any possible way I could get probation? You're just so in delusion. Mm-hmm. She's like, no, Megan, like, you're going to prison. She's like 89 pounds. Right. She's like, it's going to happen. Um, you just need to accept that reality. And I remember after my meeting with her, I I broke down and I, I went to a meeting that I knew was going on and um, they were just ending, which was perfect. Because like I go in there, I hold everybody's hands and I'm bawling. I'm just freaking crying. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so after, you know, after the meeting, everybody's coming up to me. They're not saying anything. They're just like holding my hand, hugging me. That's it. That's all I needed. I just needed a group of like-minded people who have been through what I've been through to get me through that moment where I didn't know what I was going to do. Like, I didn't have to use, you know? Mm-hmm. I didn't have to get high. I didn't have to drink. Like, all I needed was somebody to hold my hand. And that worked. Yeah. I stayed sober. And I went and I got to be with my kids that night. Um, so... Uh, I knew I was going to prison, and the day of my sentencing, um, I was blessed enough to to be able to drop my kids off at school. And, you know, I, I kind of explained the situation to my daughter and what's going on. What'd you tell her? That I was going to go away. Did you say where or how? No. Because I always want to know how this goes down. No, because at that time, my mom was going to be the main caretaker, and she didn't want her to know. So I, I honored her request, and I, I just let her know, you know, because mommy did a bad thing. Um, I have to go away for a while and I dropped her off. At Literally school. just like they say in the movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I drop her off at school that day and you know, she knows something's going down. 
Um, I get out of the car, I hug her and she's bawling and she goes, she goes to school and, um, years, like years later, you know, she and I are talking and we're talking about that day and she said, mommy, you know, when you dropped me off, I went to school and I was crying and nobody, like nobody knew I was crying. Nobody knew why. And like, I, I did that to her. That was me. Her mom. You got the whole studio crying right now. Yeah. <laughs> um. You know, that's why I do what I do today. I said I always say this, you know, but for the rest of my life, I'll be right in all the wrongs I I did, mm-hmm. you know, and this I I have to do this for all the shit I did, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. Wow. All right, so prison. Mm-hmm. You're on a minimum camp, probably. Yeah, um, I was on a minimum security camp, the camp that I actually toured when I was in college. Okay, no way, really? <laughs> yes. So you got the full tour now. <laughs> I got the full tour now. You did more time than Travis Ritchie, jeez. Gosh. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I get sentenced. They give me a 30-month sentence, and I'll never, for, I'll never forget the shriek, my mom, the scream in the courtroom. You know, at that point, I was I was living in acceptance um, I said my piece to the, to the judge, my lawyer's crying, you know, everybody, yeah. everybody just cried in the courtroom. Like I, I just spoke from the heart. Like I didn't have a speech laid out or anything. It was just, this is it. You yeah. know, like I, I don't have anything else other than like, I, I'm so flipping sorry, but how do you even say that? Yeah. And um, so my mom screams in the back once the judge hands out the sentence. And, you know, the marshals were so kind to me, though. They they didn't handcuff me in front of my family. Like, I had a, you know, all all the roles were filled with people in the program, my family. Wow. Um, lots of letters. I, I was, yeah, I probably was manipulating a little bit, but, like, I wanted to change my life For sure. and I was going to do anything and everything I needed to do to change it. So I put myself, um, where everybody told me to be, they told me to bring people for support. So I brought people for support for my mom because I knew they were going to take me away mm-hmm. and I knew she needed a lot of people there. Yeah. All right. So you'd end up serving what? 14 months. Yeah. I did 14 months. Um, so I get to prison and in prison in the feds, um, you know, if you are an addict or an alcoholic, they have a really co- cool opportunity. Uh, it's called RDAP. Wow. And as soon as I hit the camp, a couple days later, they said, hey, you qualify for RDAP, you're going into the program. And so with RDAP, you get about six months to a year off your sentence. Wow. You had a quite a pr- different prison experience than myself, oh, yes. I might say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, very different. I mean, I wasn't very um, popular when I went into the prison because there are women who are waiting years to get into that program. And, you know, this chick just comes in. Couple, Who's this white chick that thinks right, she did? Right, a couple days later, said, yeah. she's in this drug program. So um, I didn't make a lot of friends when I first got there. Definitely not. And I, I'm a very self-centered, um, egotistical person. So I, I'm too cool for school. I'm too good for prison. Mm-hmm. Basically, you know, do you even do you know who I am? Um, so I'm there, and I have a hard time making friends with people. And I get into this drug program, and it's a whole different world. 
Um, you have to follow prison rules and RDAP rules. And if somebody sees you not following a rule, um, you could get kicked out of the program. So, like, all eyes are on you. And I, yeah. I spent a year in this program, and it was intense. There were a bunch of little junior COs in, there, in the program, Ooh, too. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, um, my experience was a lot different than yours. Yeah. So, um, I had never come out to my family. Um, I'm bisexual, so prison wasn't too bad for me. Oh, you were before prison? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so I wasn't even gonna get into that. DJ told me you had a girlfriend before, but I was right. like, I'm not gonna. That's the one thing I'm gonna stay off limits with. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> cool. It's okay. So, um, in my prison experience, like I said, it was very different than yours. And I met somebody there, and I hadn't, like, I hadn't really fell in love with anybody in my lifetime. I thought I was, but it was more lust. It was more like, oh, this person looks a certain way, so like people perceive that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it, when you're in prison. It's like you don't have anything to give to this person. Like my family's putting money on my books. I actually, I <laughs> I ended up getting into a relationship with a dude and he's putting money on my books, um, wanting to get married, all that stuff, right? And so I don't need anybody for anything. Like I have what I need and I, I, I find this girl and She's just this, like, little short Mexican girl with these big glasses, you know, just the nerdiest looking thing. And I remember looking at her and just, like, my heart stopped, Mm -hmm. you know, like, um, and in the most insane place, I found the love of of my life. I, yeah, yeah, um, she meant... And she means a lot to me. Um, we spent, you know, nine months of our lives day in and day Every out day, together. Yeah. We were in the same program together. You know, like mm. we, we had to be sneaky about stuff. For like sure. yeah, that's a charge uh, with, another. you know, if you are engaging in any kind of act with another inmate, like that's a sex offender charge. Mm-hmm. So, again, with that insane thinking, like I could be a registered sex offender, but I need to get my fix. And she was my fix. So uh, my prison experience was, it was challenging. Um, I remember a day where my, I called my mom and she was just hysterical on the phone. And, you know, I'm asking like, what's going on? What's wrong? And, And one of our family members who was around my age, she had overdosed and died. Um, and this is when fentanyl started to come to the Thank patient. God I didn't use fentanyl because I'd be dead 100%. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, and she's just like, that was supposed to be you. I was supposed to get that phone call that you were dead. I was supposed to identify your body in the morgue. And um, I, I didn't know what to say. Like, I heard the pain on my mom's voice and I knew that I had destroyed my mom. Absolutely destroyed her. Wow. And so that was the moment I realized that my mom wasn't the enemy, that I was my own enemy and that I needed to start changing. Okay. And I made a decision while I was in prison to change. Cool. I didn't even, you know, like seriously. I was well, like, except my last like six months when I was in solitary. But before then, like, you know, I said, thank God I went to 
the hole again, waiting to go back to maximum security. Because if not, I would have literally got out of prison, strung out after yes. twelve years, and like mm-hmm. been right back to the shit. Mm-hmm. I want to get into some positive stuff now too, yeah. because so let's get into after prison. Because okay, <clears throat> I'm serious. I can't believe you're the person that we like that whole story before. Yeah, and now that this podcast is being played on all the tablets in the prisons across the country. I want people to know that anybody can change from okay. no matter what circumstance, no matter if you sold your body, if you've died or robbed everybody, no matter what you've done, you can change. So you're a remarkable human being today. And you have a pretty big following on your LinkedIn too. And a lot right. of people really, really like what you do now too. So <laughs> do. yeah. So when you got out of prison, you stayed completely sober oh, yeah. still now. And mm-hmm. then you work in recovery. Mm-hmm. The last part, I want to just talk about how awesome life is now because here's my biggest thing with this. <clears throat> when I was in prison, and I've people have probably heard this a hundred times, I thought the epitome of a success story for me was probably making minimum wage, maybe 20 bucks an hour, somehow get sober, always struggle and think I'm going to always want to use and drink, never going to be easy. I'm always going to have like a broke, shitty life out here, hanging out with a bunch of people in that anonymous program that are older than me and aren't fun. And my life's going to be no fun, but at least I'm not in prison. And those are my aspirations, like the epitome of my success. When I got out, that's what I hope for, you know? Right. So like you're the complete opposite. Get, <laughs> seriously, get me yeah. your thoughts right when you're getting out. And I want to get into all your positive stuff now. So cause you work in recovery now as I well do. too, which is I insane. Love it. Oh gosh. I love working in recovery. So I got out of prison. I, I went to a halfway house we, so I got out of prison when COVID just hit, okay. luckily. Um, so we were kind of locked down in the halfway house, but um, I was able to get a job working in recovery. And it was like that grunt job, right? It was overnights. Um, I was exhausted and I worked all the time, but like I was doing something I loved. For sure. I was watching <clears throat> people sleep, but I was doing something I loved That's and I was making thing, a difference, yeah. mm-hmm. right? And so I just worked my way up. I, I I switched over to a different company. I became a case manager and man, did I shine. That was my jam. I've always told people oh. if we just put, if we put a 10th of what we put into bad stuff, into positive oh, stuff, yeah. like we're all unstoppable. And I'm a firm believer that every one of us that's been through struggles like you and me, especially that have had our backs on the ground and below that, like once we can turn that and harness that and turn it into something positive like we're literally unstoppable Mm -hmm. and i honestly feel like no disrespect but we have an advantage on the rest of the world such an advantage we know the depths of hell yep and And we know the peaks of what it could look like like there is nothing we have not seen there is nothing we cannot go through we've already experienced something we didn't think we could go through and Mm -hmm. made it out better people. That's the thing. Absolutely. Can you go through the worst situation of your life and become a better person? If you can, you'll you'll find the most success in the world and it might not be monetary, but it will be internal and you will spread it to other people. I 100% believe that. Um, that I tell people that all the time, take every bad, right, situation that happens and find the good in it. And if it's a hundred percent you, if if the side of the street's only you, own it. Mm-hmm. Talk about it. And people can start doing that in prison. Oh, absolutely. I'm serious. Like, even if, if you're listening to this in a prison cell right now, like I spent 12 years of my freaking life, you know, mm-hmm. slammed down, and I probably spent over eight years slammed down in a cell. Like a lot of my sales guys in the old car dealership, if they wouldn't sell a car, nor the normal people 
are so crapped out and it like literally ruins their day. You know, yeah. I got handfuls of dudes from prison that are all sober, like mm-hmm. hired at the dealership and they're on to the next one. Like it doesn't even, it doesn't even bat an eye at them, you know, which is like I said, so if we can channel that stuff because our lows don't touch the normal people's lows, you know what I'm saying? Like they could have someone cut them off and it ruins their entire day because they've never experienced real true lows and lost everything. When you can find gratitude in life from losing everything, it makes us all unstoppable. And this is what I was saying. Anybody that's in their li- even in a prison cell right now, you can find gratitude in anything in life. And it's something that has changed the game for me. It was like literally, and I learned this from Bradley. Shout out to Bradley. The second I wake up in the morning, and I'm not a big meditation guy because I have ADD too bad. I don't do it. Mm-hmm. That's probably just an excuse, but I don't. I like say like, thank you for today. Like, let's go get it. I'm so happy that I have this day today. And like, even just a few different mental notes in your head can change how your morning goes and your morning will change how your afternoon goes. And then the entire day goes, you know, like you could find gratitude from stuff. I don't, I've I've been a super max, you know, like you could be grateful that you have a TV in super max. You know, I could have been grateful that I had like the nice sweats when other people didn't have the nice sweats Mm -hmm. or I had six sets of sweats or I had an entire cell full of commentary you know that you can find gratitude in anything and gratitude is a is a game changer for me like seriously you gotta always i've told people out here the number one thing in the world and advice i'm giving dudes from prison is keep your gratitude high and always remember that your worst day on the streets is a hundred times better than your best day in prison and it doesn't even compare no absolutely and something it was just humble yourself yeah for sure be humble look at look at the surroundings you're in and how cool is it now knowing where you came from to see in your life you know like you pulled up today with your kids like you know and like we have like you see my house like i have an eighth grade education like nothing and like i my next door neighbor's an fbi detective you know what i mean i live in a custom home community you know because i got sober it's like and the stuff doesn't stop. And it do- it does When I realize the more I give back and the more I help people, the more blessings that come to me. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And what uh, the other part on top of that is not only the blessings that come to me, but when I'm helping other people, I'm not thinking in my own stupid ass head about the shit that I got bad or, and I'm like, it keeps my gratitude in check to the fullest, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm going to end this year. I think for real, Megan, thank you so much for sharing your story. Like, Maybe my first episode, I cried as much, but like, <laughs> I just feel that. I feel like a lot of people right. can really feel that. And then like, the whole thing with mothers and kids and i feel like you're gonna help so many even families that their their daughters are going through this or you know there's probably mothers listening to this that have their daughter's kids right now at their house you know mm-hmm. so um there is proof to all you guys that we can fix it and no matter what your son or daughter or you're doing if you're sitting in prison listening to this right now it did it can all be fixed i promise you that one thing i'm going to start doing now here because i want to my passion is for one kids but on top of that it's inmates mm-hmm. and the recidivism rate so Last 30 seconds or a minute, anybody locked up that might be listening to this right now, I just want you to give them like 30 minutes or a minute of hope, your best advice, anything, pretend like you're talking to inmates right here that are listening to this while they're, while they're locked up and just even just try to get their head going in the right direction before they get out, you know? Because yeah. this is possible now with the iPads. This wasn't possible before. This is so cool. I it's didn't know this changer. was a thing. It's a game changer now. It is a game changer. So you I could was... be talking to somebody sitting in a maximum security prison cell Ugh. in New York even and giving him advice right. right now. Gosh. I just, I love you guys so much. Um, honestly, you and I are not different at all. Um, the The best thing I can tell you is just hold on to hope. Like I said, take the worst moment that you've had in your life and turn it into something that you can use for the rest of your life. 
I will never forget the moment I got arrested. I will never forget what I put my family through. I don't use that to shame myself. I use that to support my my endeavors. I use that to support my family today. You know, I'm I I've become I've become able to monetize my struggles and my pain. Mm-hmm. And I've been able to bring that to um, a population of people on LinkedIn, professionals. Loaded professionals. Every day who are just in awe and they're telling me their stories and they're telling me how they have an issue or they had an addiction problem, but they just can't come forward. And I, I, I want to be that voice for people. And I want you guys to be that voice for people to share your story and then let the world know that like, we're not bad people. We've made some pretty poor choices. I can't deny that, but I am not defined by my choices. I never will be defined by my choices. If my children can go through what they went through and still look at me and tell me how much they love me, if my mom can go through everything I put her through and still love me, then I can love myself. Because I did some pretty mean things to them, but I did a lot of mean stuff to myself. God put you in that situation. And I'll tell you this because your kids are tough. Oh my god! I'm serious. Like you have tough kids, you're tough, and he literally used you and your kids so you can do what you're doing now and help people to avoid that situation or climb out of it if they're in that situation. Absolutely. So, uh, I'm just amazed by your story. Thank you so much. I feel really privileged to get the first dibs on your story because I feel like you're going to be on a lot of podcasts up and coming. Um, Thank you again. Congratulations on your turnaround. Anybody else that's here in this locked up right now, man, uh, we're proof there's hope. Just hold on, man. That's all I can tell you is hold on and try to start making the change before you get out. Like use this as fuel, especially if you're sitting in your cell, like try to use this and switch your mindset before you go. Cause I'll tell you, if you do it like she did, it's a lot easier than getting out with a prison political mindset like I did, but we love you. Your family loves you. We're all here for you guys. And thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of Roll Call with Chappie. Thank you one more time, Megan. I'm, uh, I really like this episode. So thank you so much. It really hit home with me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us some feedback. We would love to know what you think. You can find everything discussed in this episode and more in our show notes below or petermeyeroff.com. I am Peter Meyerhoff and you've been listening to the Roll Call with Chappie podcast.